Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. So, I am so very proud to be here today uh, speaking to the New York School. It was four years ago that I was here last, and, and it's at least twice the size. And you can really feel the momentum that young people, young workers are looking for a revolutionary alternative. And that's not just an American phenomenon, that's in Canada, that's in Britain, that's all the way across the world. Young people especially are radicalizing because capitalism is a failed system. It's a failed system. We see it everywhere. We see the inequality, the, impression, the oppression, the war, the violence, state violence, everything. And, and it is turning young people to look for revolutionary ideas. And there's been numerous polls, numerous polls that show the majority of young people consider themselves socialists. And a significant minority, I think something like uh, 10 or so percent, don't even think socialism is far enough, want communism. And, and, and for that to be happening in the United States, for, for those of us of a different generation, is quite amazing. The, the country of McCarthy and the Red Scare, to have young people interested in communism and looking for communism, well, it, it really does show that capitalism has dynamite built into its foundations. And the dynamite is sitting in this room. And the dynamite is raising to class consciousness and revolutionary consciousness uh, throughout the United States and internationally. So you have this phenomena, young people interested in socialism and communism. And so what do they do? Well, they look for a revolutionary organization. They look for a communist organization. And the fantastic attendance we've got here shows that many are looking to the international Marxist tendency. But sadly, we're not big enough. We're not big enough. We're not a mass organization. We don't have mass reach yet. Uh, that's our job, to get that mass reach so everybody knows who we are and what we stand for and what we fight for. But it's quite natural. Okay, you're a 16-year-old. You're sick of capitalism. You want communism. Yeah. Who are you going to call? We are in New York, after all. Um, who are you going to call? Well, the Communist Party. That seems logical, doesn't it? And, and actually, uh, there has been this phenomenon in many countries of young people just sending off a message to their local communist party, thinking that they will get communism. Sadly, what you read on the packet is not always the content in the tin. And, and sadly, the, the communist parties in uh, pretty much every country, they're supporters of, supporters of Stalinism. In the United States, they're supporters of the Democrats, which is quite astounding. Uh, their politics is often quite reformist, supporting this 
bizarre creature called the progressive national bourgeoisie. I've never met one personally. Um, don't even know what they look like. Um, so this is why this is one of the reasons why we are having this discussion today to understand what is Stalinism. What is Stalinism? So for this revolutionary youth to understand what is genuine Marxism and genuine communism so we can know what we are fighting for. Now, there's also the flip side of this from the right wing. So the right wing says, no, no, no. And actually, I think a lot of those polls about support for socialism and communism actually come from right wing interest groups. Uh, that they're trying to raise the spectre of communism, as are we. Uh, they're trying to raise the spectre of communism to say, oh my God, the young people are so radical, we need to sort of combat this, this from a pro-capitalist right-wing perspective. And they're, and they're saying the position of the right-wing, the position of the capitalists, is that if you're in favor of socialism, if you're in favor of union rights and uh, universal health care, then you end up with Siberia and Stalin and uh, gulags and oppression and all the rest of it. So this is also a talk about why Stalinism is not Marxism for the right wing, to counter the arguments of the right wing. And here you see there's agreement between the capitalists and the Stalinists. The agreement is that Marxism and Leninism leads to Stalinism. And it's not true. It's not true. Marxism and Leninism does not inevitably lead to Stalinism. And, and, and we, but we have to understand the conditions by why the Soviet Union did degenerate into a Stalinist dictatorship. We have to understand the conditions. There's also this, this sort of liberal ideas or anarchist ideas that says there's something in the DNA of the ideology of Marxism and Leninism that leads to Stalinist totalitarianism. And, th and this is a purely idealist uh, philosophy. This idea, this idea that ideas determine everything. Uh, I wish ideas determined everything because then I could think up communism and, and we'd be living in a communist world now because I could think really hard. But the reality is that it, it, you can think things all you like, but material conditions, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, are deter determine the outcome. Right? It is totally an idealist notion outside of time and space that says it's just the ideology leads to Stalinism. When in fact, our ideology is directly opposed to st Stalinism. We are in favor of workers' democracy, workers' democratic control and internationalism. And that is the tradition of Marxism and Leninism going back uh, all the way back to the 19th century. And, and so I, I'm gonna explain some of that. So we don't believe in ideological predestination and society really, really matters. You know, Lenin, who was able to lead the Russian Revolution in 1917, even 
12 months prior was totally isolated and no one wanted to hear what he had to say. There's an example of the right idea at the right time can be decisive, but the right idea at the wrong time, well, you have to work like hell to try and convince people. That's what we're doing here, working like hell to try and convince people until the revolutionary conditions arise when, when we start swimming with the stream and people are looking for the ideas of revolutionary Marxism on a mass basis. Okay, so let's go back to those material conditions. Russia, Tsarist Russia, prior to October 1917. So horrendous conditions, to be frank. You've got the war, you've got the First World War, stupid generals don't care about the soldiers, sending them as cannon fodder to be murdered for imperialist profits. You've got uh, exploitation of the workers in the factories, hunger, food riots, bread riots. The regime cannot provide food to people. In the countryside, the peasantry, land poverty. So incredible inequality in distribution of the land. This is all summed up in uh, Lenin's three great slogans, peace, land, and bread. Terrible. And freedom, freedom for the oppressed nationalities. In Tsarist Russia, Tsarist Russia was the prison house of nationalities. 43%, only 43% of the population were great Russians. And they dominated and oppressed 57% of the population. Ukraines, Poles, Jews, uh, all the different nationalities within the Tsarist Empire. And, there, and this wasn't just a sort of a, a subtle oppression. Yes, they had secondary legal rights. Yes, the languages were oppressed. But there were regular pogroms too, murderous pogroms. Thousands upon thousands were killed by the regime, especially the Jewish population, but not just the Jewish population. And that was the nature of Tsarist Russia. They called him Nicholas the Bloody. I know some right-wingers try to present uh, you know, poor old Nicholas. Uh, well, poor old Nicholas put a lot of people to, uh, to the sword, to be hanged, to be oppressed. And, and that was a horrendous, horrific regime. And, and a regime of incredible backwardness. Uh, only 30% of the population were literate. So 70% could not read and write. It was overwhelmingly a peasant agrarian country. And, 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 this, is, and this is the social condition upon which the Russian Revolution occurred. Now, if you go back and read Marx on Marx's ideal idea for how socialism should be implemented, he didn't say it should be the most backward country. He said it should be the most economically advanced country. He thought the revolution would start in France, continue in Germany, and finish in England. And then in Marx's day, that was the majority of the, so the world economic activity, the, the capitalist economic activity and the working class. So socialism was supposed to come about upon the most advanced technique and the most developed working class. But that's not how history 
happened. It didn't break where it would have been the easiest to implement a socialist planned economy, nationalization, workers' control, uh, democratic socialism. It didn't happen there. It happened, capitalism broke at its weakest link, the most corrupt, the most bankrupt, and that was Tsarist Russia. And in a sense, it was easier to overthrow the Tsarist state, being so very bankrupt and brittle, but it was also the hardest to build socialism because it didn't have the economic uh, technique. But despite all of this backwardness, the Russian workers succeeded, they, 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 they put through miracles, utter miracles, the creative genius of the working class. Even though the workers were only 10% of the Russian uh, population, they, they led the revolution. They were the most conscious, self-sacrificing, and educated sector of the population. That they led the poor peasantry to overthrow czarism and capitalism. And, and in our view, the Russian Revolution was the greatest event in human history. Uh, and, and the founding of the Soviet Union as part of that revolution, the greatest event in human history. For the first time in history, the slaves rose up and the slaves won. And, and they were attacked, attacked by 21 foreign armies of, of imperialist intervention. American troops, British troops, French, German, Canadian troops from, from Victoria to Vladivostok, uh, Chinese, you know, Japanese troops, every side they were hemmed in and they fought back and they won. It's incredibly inspiring. And they were never forgiven for that. Actually, again, we are reclaiming that history because it's not enough for the capitalists to defeat a revolution. They need to pile all the dirt and the crud on top of it to make the memory of the revolution something that stinks. Well, no, we remember our class fought and won and fought with the methods of the working class, which is mass demonstrations, mass unions, mass parties and mass democracy. The Russian workers invented this, this incredible thing called the Soviet, the Soviet. Everybody's heard the name Soviet. And, and I know if you're a comrade of uh, the IMT, uh, you know what I'm about to say. Uh, but but if, if you're new to us, you might not know what the word Soviet actually means. It's just the Russian word for council. You know, it's not something magical. It's just the word for council. But in the revolutionary struggle in 1917, the, the Russian workers created these democratic organs of struggle. It's essentially an extended strike committee. If you think about a general strike, well, in a, in a genuine general strike, nothing happens. And and, and a successful general strike, it has to have representation for all of the unions, but not just that, but from all sectors of the working class. From, uh, from uh, you know, students, from in the day housewives, you know, 
or all parts of the working class so that essential services can be taken on. And, and, and that's what uh, the Soviets were, were genuine democratic organs of struggle, open to uh, election, all the delegates open for election, elected from your workplaces, not the sort of pseudo-democracy, capitalist democracy we get these days where nobody even bothers voting because it's all bankrupt anyway. Uh, no, delegates are elected from your workplace and they're open to immediate recall, that incredible organic revolutionary democracy. And, and that's an incredible invention of uh, the Russian working class, that political revolutionary democracy, far more democratic than anything we see in so-called democratic countries like United States and Canada, uh, although with, with all the uh, billionaire money and the gerrymandering, the fixing of boundaries, the restriction on third parties, all of that, you know, how they call this system democratic, I do not know. Uh, it is not democratic by any means. But the Russian workers uh, put together a genuine democracy, and not just a political democracy, but an economic democracy. Okay, so again, US and Canada, we have a pseudo, not really democratic political system, but what happens when you go to work? You are in an absolutist dictatorship. You have one word out of line, that's it, you're fired, you're out. Start talking about a union, you're definitely out, right? So we have no economic democracy in the capitalist world. Well, what did the workers of Russia start to do? They occupied the factories. They elected delegates to run society, not just political democracy, but economic democracy. That's what genuine revolutionaries base themselves on, political and economic democracy elect your boss, but your boss doesn't get any more money than you. And, every, and, and universal and lifelong education so that everybody can take on magic managerial coordinating roles. It's a task that needs to be done, well, let's elect it and let's make sure there's no privileges. And, and the workers themselves, they know how to run the economy. They know how to run production better than any boss or bureaucrat. So that's how we're based on you know, political and economic democracy, and you had this wave of factory occupations in the Russian Revolution. And the other pillar of the Russian Revolution was the right of the oppressed nations to self-determination. Absolutely vital. Spoke about how 57% of the population were oppressed nationalities. And the Bolsheviks, the communists, had on their banner the right of oppressed nations to self-determination. You are oppressed. We will, we will respect your right to a language. We will respect your right to equality under the law. And we will respect your right to separate if you so choose. But let's, because the workers will respect your rights, let's unite to overthrow this Tsarist state that is oppressing all of us, that is also oppressing the Russian working class. And if we unite, and then there could be genuine democratic freedom. And on that basis, it united all of the oppressed. Uh, and we're going to be discussing that tomorrow. United all of the oppressed by defending the right to self-determination. And that's a vital constituent 
part of the founding of the Soviet Union. So, the greatest event, October Revolution. The workers seize the power. Again, there's this view of, there's this Stalinist view, uh, or even a liberal academic view of socialism and communism. It's bureaucrats telling people what to do. No, 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 no. Our tradition is democratic workers' control. What was one of the first uh, appeals that Lenin made from the new Soviet government? It was to the working class, don't wait. Don't wait for us to tell you what to do. Do it yourselves. Self-organize the workers in your neighborhood. Do an inventory of the food, of the accommodation. There was a homelessness crisis. There was a hunger crisis. And distribute it amongst the people. We will support you, but do it yourself. Later on, Trotsky talked about how the working class needs to view itself as the ruling class. See, that, that's one of the, the problems of working class people. The whole education of capitalist society is teaching working class people to be subservient. Yet they tell us we're dumb, we're stupid, we cannot do things. When in fact, the most creative people are the working class. We are the most creative class. We do everything, we make everything. Not a light shines, not a wheel turns without the kind permission of the working class. But then there's all this propaganda saying, no, no, only the, the politicians, the lawyers, the doctors, the men, men in suits, only they are the experts. Well, no, the workers are the experts, but they have to realize it. It's a point of self-realization. So Lenin said, organize yourselves and, 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 and put forward in state and revolution four conditions of workers' democracy. One, the election of all responsible positions. Two, the right to recall of all of those positions. So if someone isn't doing a job, you kick them out, you put someone good in. Three, no elected representative to receive the pay higher than a skilled worker. So no corruption. And four, for the rotation of all responsible positions. So let every cook be prime minister was Lenin's word. So there wouldn't be an ossified bureaucracy. See, th these are the conditions for workers' democracy. Uh, you, you may think this sounds great. How did it all fall apart? I'll come to that in a minute. Uh, and, and, and so there's incredible revolutionary period, incredible revolutionary period where the workers were driving the state forward. And, and this culminated in the founding of uh, the Soviet Union, the USSR in 1922. Actually, I think the 100th anniversary was yesterday, maybe, um, the actual date of it. And, and this was uh, a free voluntary union between uh, the, the Soviet Russia, Soviet Ukraine, Soviet Bielorussia, and the Soviet uh, Transcaucasian region. And those, those are the first signatories. Many other nationalities signed on later. And this was a free and voluntary union. Uh, in, in Canada, uh, the IMT is organized both in English and French Canada. And, and our slogan is for a voluntary union of a socialist Quebec and a socialist Canada. And, th and the Soviet Union was that voluntary union of the oppressed nationalities of Russia. 
And, but voluntary implies, look, we want to unite, but if any of the parties choose to be independent, that is their right. That is their right. And, and only by defending that and saying, we will not forcibly retain you, then that provides the condition for a voluntary union. You know, it's like a marriage, right? We, we hope people have a uh, healthy and productive relationships, uh, but if any, any party is forcibly held within that marriage, well, it's not voluntary, it's not healthy, right? So we want voluntary unions. Actually, so much so, the, they went so, so far to a degree to remove the oppressive characteristics that they removed all reference to Russia in the documents of the Soviet Union and the language of the Soviet Union. Moved all references to Russia. It was merely the workers' state or the Soviet state that uh, and, and made real pains to make sure there wasn't this Russian national, national oppression. So there's an incredible opportunity, incredible opportunity. And the, the Russian Revolution was a spark for revolutionary movements globally. Revolutions don't respect borders. And so there was Hungarian Revolution, German Revolution, uh, Czechoslovakia, yeah, wave of revolutionary movements in country after country. There was uh, mutinies of the troops sent in to fight Russia. Uh, it was an incredible opportunity for revolution internationally. Sadly, all of those revolutions went down to defeat often because the communists in all of these countries were, were fairly young and inexperienced. They didn't know what they were doing. Again, another reason why we are having these discussions here. So we don't make the same mistakes that our forebears made before us. And isolated, the conditions in the Soviet Union were terrible. So World War I, another several years of civil war, famine, illiteracy. Again, the social conditions were terrible. And Lenin's ideas for workers' democracy and workers' control, that's what we want. But you can't have workers' democracy and workers' control when the class-conscious workers have gone to fight in the civil war and mostly been killed. And that, and that was what happened in those first five years of the Russian Revolution, that the workers fought and the, the workers sacrificed, the workers won the civil war, but they were either dead tired or dead. And society still needs to function. Society still needs to function. And who was running things? The old czarist bureaucrats, the old czarist bureaucrats, because they were the people who could read and write, knew, knew how to administer things. Now, this was fine in the first few years because in the first few years, behind every bureaucrat, there was a worker with a gun telling them what to do, <laughs> telling them to follow the wishes of the people. You know, and the bureaucrat didn't like it, but, you know, uh, they're going to do as they're told. But progressively, what ended up happening, that instead of the workers telling these bureaucrats what to do, the bureaucrats were telling the workers what to do. Uh, and you had this growing bureaucratization of the revolution from, from a fairly early stage based upon bad economic conditions. 
I've seen in the socialist movement, sometimes people present bureaucratism as if it is a moral failing. Well, I've seen some bureaucrats with pretty awful morals, okay. Uh, but that's not a Marxist way of approaching things. That, uh, you know, and actually when you start talking about masses, look, some people are fantastic and moral. Other think people are terrible and amoral, and most people are somewhere in the middle. You can't rely upon socialist heroes to do everything because the majority of society are not class-conscious socialist heroes. Only, you know, only achieve that consciousness through revolutionary conditions and a future revolutionary society and a revolutionary socialist education. But we have all of the faults of capitalism. Uh, and it will take humanity, I don't know, one, two, so many generations to expunge all of the selfishness, the racism, the sexism, all of these evils of, of capitalist society. It'll take a while. But there is, so we have to understand it's not a moral question. It is bureaucracy is actually an economic question. There is an economic root of bureaucracy. When there is shortage, when there is hunger, when there is lack of housing, lack of education, or anything like that, then the, the, the only fair way to uh, administer that, well, how does capitalism administer shortage? They hike up the price. So if you're rich, you're fine. If you're poor, you're not. Trying not to swear. Uh, <laughs> So you know, that's how capitalism solves shortage. How does a, a, a worker state solve shortage? Well, sadly, you've got to have a line. You've got to have a line, you have rationing, you have a rotor. So, and if there's not enough, you know, if, if there's really not enough, that line's going to be very long. And it'll, if you don't put a policeman on that line, it will be disordered. And the strong will seize what is the front of the line, and the weak will starve. So you need an administrator, a cop, to keep the line in order. That's the bureaucrat. That's the bureaucrat. That, and the bureaucrat gets whatever's at the front of the line. Otherwise, they would never keep the line in order. Right? That is the economic base of bureaucracy. It's based upon shortage and based upon illiteracy, lack, lack of uh, education and, uh, uh, and uh, ability in the population. So you had these bureaucrats developing out of the backwardness of Russian society and the Civil War. Again, where's the ideology in this? Lenin put forward the conditions for a workers' democracy, and those could have been implemented if the revolution had occurred in Germany or Britain with a more developed economy, but it didn't. It happened in Russia, and so they had to make do on the conditions that they had. Now, Lenin, Lenin saw this developing bureaucracy and started waging a war against it. Yeah, again, the, there's this idea that uh, Lenin was a you know, full supporter of Stalin. Well, actually, Lenin waged a war against the Stalinist bureaucracy in the last years of his life, when he was struggling with illness and, and, and was suffering from strokes 
and was coming back and forward between political life and, and being in the, uh, the hospice. But he, he united with Trotsky and said, we must fight this growing bureaucratism and, and very explicitly fight uh, what Stalin was doing is becoming the main figurehead of the bureaucratic tendencies in the workers' state. And, and one of the, uh, the trigger points for Lenin's fight against bureaucracy was, is it's actually inextricably linked to the founding of the Soviet Union and the national question. And this was the Georgian affair. So Stalin was a Georgian. And, and Lenin previously leaned upon him uh, so he, Stalin's first ministerial sort of position in the new worker state was commissariat of uh, nationalities because he was a Georgian. But uh, subsequently, Lenin sort of pointed out that often the worst great nationalist oppressors, the great Russian nationalist oppressors, actually come from the oppressed nationalities because they want to prove themselves. They have achieved high office, so they want to approve them, uh, yeah, sort of, uh, sort of prove themselves as big and strong. And Stalin and a couple of his henchmen totally violated the self-determination of the Georgian workers' state and the Georgian Communist Party. They purged the leaders of the Georgian Bolsheviks. And Lenin was livid, utterly livid. That this, this is... Uh, a disgusting violation, a bureaucratic violation of self-determination. Upon the, and this ideology was put about that we must have a centralized uh, state administration. Uh, and, and then he said, where did this come from? Where did this come from? This is a violation of the right of nations to self-determination. Uh, it is just a recreation of czarist great Russian oppression through bureaucratic expediency. You know, and, it, and Lenin said, look, I can see from the perspective of a bureaucrat, yes, you want to have ease of administration. It's very difficult to have to administer 20 different uh, nationalities. But what's more important is the self-determination of those oppressed nationalities. Otherwise, we'll be lost. And actually, the, uh, I'll, I'll read some of uh, what Lenin had to say about this um, in uh, 1920, the end of 1922. Uh, yes, we, we, but we must in all conscience admit that the apparatus we call ours is in fact still quite alien to us. It is a bourgeois and czarist hodgepodge and there's been no possibility of getting rid of it in the course of the past five years without the help of other countries and because we've been busy most of the time with military engagements and the fight against famine. It's quite natural that in such circumstances the freedom to secede from the Union by which we justify ourselves will be a mere scrap of paper, unable to defend the non-Russians from the onslaught of that really Russian man, the great Russian chauvinist, in substance a rascal and a tyrant, such as the typical Russian bureaucrat is. There is no doubt that the infinitesimal percentage of Soviet and Sovietized workers will drown in that tide of chauvinistic great Russian riffraff like a fly in milk. So anybody who's concerned about sharp language in current politics uh, should read a little bit of Lenin. He's fantastic when he had to say. Uh, and then he turned on Stalin directly. I think that Stalin's haste and his infatuation with pure administration 
uh, together with his spite, uh, played a fatal role here in politics. Spite generally plays the basest of roles. So that's really, you know, Stalin was obviously a successor of Lenin by those words. Uh, and, and, and that was repeated in Lenin's testament, where Lenin said that Stalin was a bureaucrat and should be removed. So uh, you had this, uh, but uh, this was yeah, linking the national oppression and that rising bureaucracy, that anti-democratic bureaucracy. Sadly, Lenin died soon after. Lenin was incapacitated, left, uh, wasn't able to participate in politics and, and died soon after. Who knows what role he could have played in, in fighting the, the Stalinist bureaucracy. Maybe it would have uh, delayed things to a degree, maybe not. Actually, Lenin's wife, Krupskaya, said in 1926 that if Lenin was alive today, he would be in prison. Because at the end of the day, actually, yes, Lenin was a great man who, without Lenin and Trotsky, the Russian Revolution would not have been successful. But that was in October of 1917. The right people at the right time can make all the difference. But, in but social forces are more important than any individual. And in this, with the defeat of the, re of the world revolution, uh, in, in those period, the, re the revolutionary tendency in Russia was always going to be isolated and the bureaucracy was always going to advance. And, and this, is, this is where you saw the rise of Stalin. And it's not because Stalin was smarter. Actually, if any of you read any Stalin, he's not very good. <laughs> uh, it's not very well written. Uh, his best work is on the question of nationalities. But that was dictated by Lenin, right? And, and the rest of it is, is, is high, it's, it's just not even very good style. Um, but it's also, if you look at it historically, it says radically different things in different periods. But uh, Stalin had a sort of inherently bureaucratic mindset. And it wasn't that he created the bureaucracy, it's more the bureaucracy selected him. And he was very useful to them. He was, he was a, an old Bolshevik, been a member of the Bolshevik party since you know, approximately uh, sort of 1905-ish, something around then. And, and so had that authority from being an old Bolshevik, but played a secondary role, played practically no role in 1917. But I had the same similar characteristics. Trotsky actually called Stalin the outstanding mediocrity, the number one mediocrity of all of the mediocrities. And, and different periods brings forth different people. In a revolution, the individuals come forward who have all the inspiring qualities of self-sacrifice and heroism and audacity and audacious ideas. But in periods of reaction, well, baseness comes forward and routinism comes forward and, and, a, and a lack of all of these inspiring qualities. And, 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 the, and the bureaucracy saw themselves in Stalin. And, and then after Lenin's death, the question was sort of, what will be the nature of the leadership of the Soviet Union? And, uh, and Stalin, together with the bureaucracy, 
formed a pact, the temporary pact with Zinoviev and Kamenev, to isolate Trotsky, who Lenin identified as the most capable revolutionary leader in his testament. And this myth of Trotskyism was created. Myth of uh, Trotskyism in opposition to revolutionary internationalism. Trotsky put forward this idea of the permanent revolution. I don't have time to develop that idea today, but the inherent part of the permanent revolution was international revolution. That revolutions don't respect borders and that you cannot genuinely achieve socialism in a single country. You must spread the revolution. Of course, the revolution will occur once in, in a single country, but the idea is to spread it. And that is what happened after 1917. There was a revolutionary wave. You see that in recent periods. You saw the Arab Revolution started in Tunisia, immediately spread to the Arab world. And, and, and there's Egyptian Revolution. And actually, the, the Occupy movement in New York City uh, had the slogan, strike like an Egyptian. Right? So those ideas and those inspiration, the movement takes inspiration. Black Lives Matter spread everywhere. Uh, I, there's uh, demonstrations in my hometown of Toronto, Black Lives Matter, sparked off by the movement in the States. So the revolutionary movement does not respect boundaries. But here the bureaucrats and, uh, and Stalin was hitting against this idea of international revolution. And you can understand this from the perspective of bureaucratic psychology. You know, I, I don't want all this storm and stress of world revolution and, and all that stuff. Can I just administer stuff at home? Can I just push my paper from one part of my desk to the other part of my desk, right? I just want an easy life. You know, I can't blame them. They want an easy life. Uh, I, I suspect uh, many of us are in the room today because uh, we've decided that life is not easy and we have to fight. <laughs> uh, but the bureaucrat uh, wanted an easy life. So, so they developed this idea of socialism in one country. Uh, actually, the irony is, so Stalin was so put, putting forward this idea of socialism in one country at the end of uh, 1924. But the beginning of the 1924, he actually wrote an introduction to some of Lenin's writings where he said, can we achieve socialism in one country? No, that is not possible. You need the combined action of several advanced countries. That was the beginning of 1924. At the end, they'd conveniently scribbled out that bit and said, no, 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 you can achieve socialism in one country. It went against all of Marx's and Lenin's writings repeatedly, again and again and again. You need the united action of uh, workers in many advanced countries, let alone backward Russia with only 30% literacy, that you cannot achieve a classless society. And actually, that's what we mean by socialism. It's a classless society with a superabundance abundance of goods. Yes, you can achieve a worker's state. You can overthrow capitalism, the capitalist state. And, but that's not socialism. That's, that's a transitional state in, in Marx's terms and, and has many problems you know, that you haven't achieved full socialism, full classless society. Um, and, and when the workers went to these bureaucrats and tried to tell them what to do. They were told, go away, go away. What do you think this is, 1919? Go away. The bureaucrats were ruling the roost and becoming a privileged caste. They were becoming a, 
totally privileged class, against everything that Lenin was trying to implement. In fact, in the first days of uh, the worker state, Lenin and the communists insisted that no communist should get any special benefits. Precisely the opposite, that of course, there, so there was huge skill shortages, huge skill shortages. So they had to rely upon old uh, experts, engineers, uh, accountants, uh, people like that. And as a, what they called a blatantly bourgeois concession, they inst instituted a one to four wage ratio that the highest wage was four times the minimum wage. And, that, and they viewed that as a terrible, terrible concession, a capitalist concession due to skill shortages. But that differential higher wage was not applicable to communists. If you uh, were a member of the Communist Party, then you had to take the minimum wage. You had to take the, the party maximum, which, which was a low wage. In fact, in the early days, the food in the Soviet was so bad that the, the communist delegates ended up going to the prison across the street that had better food, <laughs> right? There was no privileges. But with this bureaucratic usurpation, all of these privileges, better house, better food, access to a car, you know, uh, that, and, and you saw that develop to obscene levels. And when there's a starvation in society, even the smallest things can become a, a, a lever for obscene corruption. I, actually, I even saw this myself. Uh, my mum's Hungarian, and I used to go on holidays to Hungary in the 1980s when I was a kid. And, and we actually went to a Hungarian Communist Party uh, sort of holiday home uh, to pick up some friends and there were servants and there was, uh, you know, there was the apparatchiks in an, who are a privileged elite and, and the workers are in a secondary position. Uh, Trotsky also talks about this in The Revolution Betrayed, how the, 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 the bureaucracy started using demeaning language towards the workers, using diminutive childlike language, I, I guess the equivalent of boy, right, um, to, to, to workers and servants, uh, whereas you know, on the other side they have to call them sir, right, the equivalent in Russian. And, and so these, all of these petty and then not so petty privileges started developing upon the bureaucratic layer. So this, this is this corruption. So they were trying to isolate Trotsky and isolate the working class, isolate uh, the left opposition. So the genuine Marxist tendency organized by Trotsky and the left opposition to re-seize workers' democracy and international uh, revolution. But sadly, again, these, the social uh, political basis ends up being determinative. German Revolution 1923 failed. British general strike due to the bad policy of the Stalinists failed. The two-stage theory led to the Chinese revolution in 1926-27 down to defeat. And the left opposition predicted all of these things. Trotsky predicted 
all of these things. Actually, some of the Trotsky supporters said, look, we predicted this. We showed how the false Stalinist policy would lead to a defeat. People will agree with us now. Trotsky shook his head to his young supporters. Well, sorry. Uh, yeah, we might win some intellectuals with our predictions, but the reality is the working class as a whole will be even more demoralized by these defeats, and that will isolate us further. So the irony is, is that the mistakes and the false policy and the defeats of the Stalinists actually strengthened Stalinism because it demoralized the working class. And the revolutionary tendency was based upon the confidence and the independent activity and independent control of the working class. And the workers were just tired and demoralized. They desperately needed the German working class or a more technologically advanced working class to save them, to help them out and unite that fantastic technique with the raw materials, the raw resources of the Soviet Union. Um, so I'm, I'm running a little bit late, so I'm, I'm going to speed it up a bit. But the, uh, sadly, the left opposition was isolated, and then Trotsky was expelled from the country in 1927, and the left opposition was banned, and there was a wholesale uh, violent repression against independent working class voices and the left opposition was, was illegalized. And at this stage still, the bureaucracy and the Stalinists were just like feeling their way. And in fact, you know, in the 1920s, to, while they were using bureaucratic methods, to a certain extent, they were honest revolutionaries to a greater or lesser degree. They wanted success. Their policy determined failure, but they wanted success. But by the time it got to the 1930s, the bureaucracy became conscious of its counter-revolutionary role. And with the Spanish Revolution, 1936, the, the Stalinist, Stalinist deliberately sabotaged the Spanish Revolution because in fact it was the, the Russian workers were becoming enthused by the Spanish Revolution. And that was a danger to the privileges of the bureaucracy. So they waged a one-sided civil war. There was torture chambers and arrests and murders inside Spain. And then that was reflected within the Soviet Union. Whole series of purge trials that, and, and ridiculous purge trials ridiculous confessions that totally illogical and it was like why are you know so Zinoviev and Kamenev and these other uh, Bolshevik leaders from uh, prior to the revolution why are they admitting to all of these terrible things well that's the sort of psychological pressure and torture uh, incredible you know individuals can break and say ridiculous things there was a one-sided civil war from the Stalinist bureaucracy against the old Bolshevik party, against the old Communist Party. And, and in fact, by the time you got to the 1940s, only one remained. Only one remained, Stalin, the executioner, remained over all of the old Bolshevik leadership of 1917. Oh, I, th I think Kolontai was a Swedish ambassador. She managed to survive. Uh, but uh, all, all the rest of them uh, were murdered or killed uh, by Stalin. And, 
And this, actually, this is one of the strongest arguments against saying that Stalinism is the natural inheritor of Leninism. If that was the case, why would there be a river of blood between genuine Marxism and Stalinism? Why would Stalin have to kill all of the old Bolsheviks that could remember the old revolutionary period? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. There is a river of blood separating us, genuine Marxism, from Stalinism. It is not the inheritor. It is the grave digger of the revolution. It is the counter-revolution. As you see in many other revolutions, Trotsky talked about Thermidor and Bonapartism using the analogy from the French Revolution. So yes, there is an, uh, a revolution and every revolution elicits a counter-revolution and that's what Stalin was. Although typically the counter-revolution doesn't go back so far that it eradicates everything. It doesn't eradicate everything. Like Napoleon didn't eradicate the revolutionary advances of the French Revolution, even though he, he, he was a reactionary. Um, and, and actually, it is important for us to remember what was progressive about the Soviet Union. I've talked about the crimes of Stalinism. I talked about how they came to power due to the low educational level and the tiredness of the working class. But the Soviet Union achieved incredible things. Utterly incredible things. Not because of the Stalinists, but despite the Stalinists. And that's the basis of the nationalized planned economy. This tells us that nationalization and planning is far more efficient than capitalism. And in fact, the Soviet Union won the Second World War. 90% of the fighting and dying was on the Eastern Front. The Brits and the Yanks were waiting, waiting for uh, Hitler and, and the Soviet Union to tire each other out and they were just gonna waltz in and take everything over. That's not what happened. Uh, in fact, the, the advance from Stalingrad to Berlin was one of the fastest advances in military history. And the reason for the Normandy invasion, Normandy landings, that's the only thing you hear about in uh, high school in US, Canada, Britain, and in the West is the, the Normandy landings. Well, if that didn't happen, they wouldn't have met the Red Army in Berlin. They would have met it at Dieppe on the French coast, right? Because, and the reason for the invasion was precisely to stop the Red Army and, and meet them in the middle. But not just that, the Soviet Union had, was first man in space. Incredible development of the productive forces actually achieved the second highest GDP on the planet before it collapsed. Uh, more doctors, scientists, engineers than any other country on the planet, and let alone per head. Incredible development of the productive forces based upon the planned economy. Uh, but unfortunately, the lack of workers' democracy, that was the cancer in the foundations of the Soviet Union. Actually, again, if you talk to Stalinists today, ask them, why did the Soviet Union collapse? And they will tell you boogeyman stories about, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Gorbachev, who just died, didn't he? Um, that, uh, you know, oh, yeah, one or two bad apples brought down the, uh, the, the country with the uh, second highest GDP on the planet. 
How, how does that make any sense? We're Marxists. We believe in historical materialism, class analysis of society. Here is the great man or the terrible man theory of history. Right? They have no theory for why the Soviet Union collapsed. Only genuine Marxism, Trotskyism can explain that. The lack of workers' democracy. The socialist economy, a Soviet economy, needs democracy like the body needs oxygen. Without democracy, you can't have a genuine planned economy. With bureaucratic control, you get the disinterest of the workers. So they get ordered around by some bureaucrat. Workers could think, well, that's stupid. But I'm not, I'm not going to speak up. I'm going to uh, lose, you know, I, I'm going to be punished. Might be sent to Siberia, something. So, all right, I'll do the stupid thing you tell me to do. Um, and, and all of this waste, corruption, nepotism, uh, and, and disorganization. And eventually that led to the, the stagnation of the Soviet economy from the 1970s because it became too complicated for 50 bureaucrats in Moscow to plan. And eventually that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Because, and then the bureaucracy itself, faced with an impasse, decided to turn themselves into capitalists. And the, uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union was one of the biggest crimes against humanity. The Russian Revolution, the foundation of the Soviet Union, was one of the greatest events of human history. The dissolution was an utter crime. There was a 60% reduction in GDP, a 15-year reduction in life expectancy. The return of all of these evils of alcoholism, of prostitution, of the mafia, or the rest of it. And in its place, the mafia regime of Yeltsin and then Putin, which has, you know, launch off new conflicts in the present war we see in Ukraine, the imperialist war between the imperialist powers using Ukraine as a battleground. So th this, this is the, the legacy of the failure of Stalinism. So we must remember the advances of the planned economy and we defend those advances, but we unite them with workers' democracy. With workers' democracy, based upon a nationalized planned economy, you can achieve amazing things. You can unleash the creativity of the working class. That when a worker comes up with a good idea, they know it's gonna be implemented because they are running production. We are running production, our class, the working class. And, and all of those advances in productivity go towards benefiting everybody. So we based ourselves on the be best of workers' democracy. We based ourselves on internationalism, not petty nationalism, petty uh, bureaucratism. We based ourselves on the highest educational level. You know, the Russian Revolution was stuck in, in backward Russia where people couldn't read and write. Do we have that problem today? I don't think so. In fact, the educational level of the working class has never been higher. In fact, for every four PhDs, there's only one job. You know, you don't have an undereducated working class, you have an overeducated working class. So we, the workers have the skills to run society. Workers have the skills to put in Lenin's four points, the election, recall, rotation, and no privileges. We've got that 
ability today. So we have the possibility for a new socialist society. But first, we have to bring down capitalism, comrades. We have to bring down capitalism before we get to refound the USSA, <laughs> right? As part of the World Socialist Soviet Federation of workers' democracy, of workers' councils. And we have to build the international Marxist tendency, comrades. Build the international Marxist tendency on the basis of democratic workers' control, basis of relying upon the creativity of working class people. There is nothing more powerful than the creativity and the confidence of the working class, of our class. No bureaucracy, no boss, no capitalist can stand in our way, in the way of the working class, united to struggle for revolution. Thank you, comrades. Get ready for International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency. Marxist.com A society which can live in harmony with nature, develop the productive forces without destroying the environment. The institutions of international capital, the markets for example, the IMF. Capital comes to the wall dripping blood and dirt from its every port. Hi, I'm Joe Attard, an activist with the IMT, writer for Marxist.com, and the host of a brand new podcast series, International Marxist Radio IMR. We here at Marxist.com are so excited to bring you this new show, which will offer all the best Marxist news, theory, and analysis that you've come to expect from our articles in audio form. And why are we launching this series now? Simply put, 2022 was a watershed in the history of world politics. Capitalism is in its deepest ever crisis, and the global situation was turned upside down. You have the Ukraine war, the cost of living crisis, insurrectionary movements in one country after another, from Sri Lanka to Iran... The year ended with the congressional coup against Pedro Castillo and the mass protest movement in response by workers and peasants. Simply put, the class struggle is intensifying. The crisis is accelerating. This is a podcast for revolutionaries. We need to equip you with the analysis and ideas necessary to navigate this tumultuous new period and fight to change the world. And on top of that, we know there's a hunger for Marxist theory and education. Our philosophy is the only one capable of really making sense of what's going on in the world. And we're going to be bringing you all sorts of discussion on theoretical topics from economics to history to philosophy to science and more. We already have so many amazing episodes that we can't wait to share with you. Episode 1 is going to land in January 2023, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast at your preferred streaming platform. We're available on all the big ones. And in the meantime, help us spread the word. Get on social media, share this ad, share our teaser with the hashtag IMR, and tell us what kinds of subjects you want us to cover. And above all, 
This podcast is the voice of the international Marxist tendency, a revolutionary Marxist organization fighting to transform society all over the world. So if you're inspired by the ideas you hear on this podcast, then get in touch via our website, marxist.com, find your local IMT section, and learn more about how you can fight to transform society, overthrow capitalism, and build socialism in our lifetimes. I'm Joe Attard, this is IMR, and we'll see you in 2023. listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.